Hi, this is Annika Fain with Northwest Fish Passage Podcast. This is episode 12. Today, I am here on Zoom with Marisa Litz, a research scientist in the fish program at Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. She leads the Coast Ecology and Life Cycle Monitoring Unit focused on Pacific salmon and steelhead. Thank you so much for joining me today, Marissa. Thank you, Annika. It's a pleasure to be here. And what uh, tribal lands are, are you on today? So I am speaking to you today from Olympia, and I am on the tribal lands of the Nisqually Indian tribe and the Squaxin Island Nation. And I'm here in Bellingham on the ancestral lands of Lummi, Nooksack, and Salish Sea tribes. What motivated you to study marine science and get a PhD? Well, Annika, the first thing I can say is it definitely wasn't a linear path. So I started my academic journey at the University of British Columbia, and I actually was raised on the east coast of the U.S. and Canada in Maine and New Brunswick. So my first exposure to the west coast was moving to Vancouver. I have a degree in anthropology, so I was really fascinated by different cultures and different ways of experiencing life and and yeah I was just drawn to ethnography and anthropology and uh, as soon as I graduated I actually got a job on the west coast of Vancouver Island working with the Nicholneth First Nations and while I was there um, say you know these are the salmon people and there was a lot of you know, exposure not only to Northwest Coast art, but these salmon resources and these beautiful temperate rainforests. And, you know, I decided then and there, I I want to do this as a career. Uh, So my next move was moving back to Maine to study marine sciences. And while I was there, had some great mentors, particularly one, Bob Battis. I taught an amazing field marine ecology course that really motivated me in that direction. And he ended up writing a beautiful letter of recommendation. And so once I finished in Maine, I ended up at the Oregon State University in the fisheries science um, program there. And uh, I got both a master's degree and a PhD at Oregon State University funded by NOAA Fisheries and doing a lot of collaborative work with NOAA and Oregon State University, a lot of ocean research focused on salmon ocean ecology when I was there. So that, that took about 12 years over <laughs> in all, just because I took breaks from my studies to serve as a technician and to travel and, and do other things. So I I know that for part of that, you were supported by the NOAA Educational Partnership Program in Minority Serving Institutions. So I'd love to hear more about that program. Certainly. So the NOAA uh, Educational Partnership Program with Minority Serving Institutions is a program within NOAA. It's part of their um, Department of Education. So they support a lot of high school, undergraduate, and graduate research. But this particular program was designed to provide a workforce-ready pipeline of students from underserved communities. And so they provide internships, 
scholarships, um, support for students and the minority serving institutions, there's several, but it's across sort of the, the NOAA mission. So uh, oceanography, fisheries research, atmospheric and climate research. And they are great about not only supporting students' um, tuition, but also annually hosting conferences, you know, pre-COVID times yeah. when, um, when students can come together, have opportunities for professional development, for sharing their research, um, for getting feedback, for networking across the country, um, and really elevating their science to an international realm publishing. And um, so it's, it's a great program. Do you know this year what's happening? Are they going to be able to have a virtual conference? I, be I believe a virtual conference is in the works as it is, you know, in all of our daily lives these days, you know, and they can be really, I've, you know, I've attended a few at conferences this year and, you know, they're very informative, but it, it doesn't, quite mimic the experience of face-to-face of -face interactions and some of the networking that happens in, you know, in, in the post sessions and, you know, after the wine starts flowing. Right. <laughs> and then if people want to, are interested in applying to that program, what's the best way they should do that? So directly through the program managers, they have an excellent website. So if you could post that, you know, it's yeah. a great opportunity for students to peruse and um, see if they're eligible for any of the sort of undergraduate funding or graduate funding opportunities, or even just some of the internship opportunities that are available. Do you know uh, if they have a database of people that have gone through the programs and that I could access or to the public? So we believe that there are reports, periodic reports and updates on their website of past um, students that have been supported in the past, where they are now. And um, mm -hmm. certainly the pro program managers can steer you in the right direction. Okay. I know you work at Department of Fish and Wildlife now. And can you tell me a little about why you decided to go there instead of maybe going to a university as a faculty? I decided during my dissertation work, I came to the conclusion that academia really was not for me. <laughs> and for me being, you know, a, a, a you know, black indigenous person of color, a female, I often felt very isolated doing my work. There's an excellent book it's a collection of essays. It's called Presumed Incompetent, and it's the experiences of women in academia. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's referred to as sort of the death by a thousand cuts, but, you know, um, women typically experience a lot of microaggressions, or they are spoken over, or just assumed to be incapable of the academic rigor of an institution in academia. And, and that's really a false narrative. You know, there, there's mm -hmm. a ton of super competent females and people of color, and uh, we're often not nurtured in an academic environment. And so I knew it wasn't for me, uh, mm -hmm. but I also, you know, was passionate about the subject. You know, I really wanted to take on more of a mentoring role for junior scientists and 
uh, I found my home in the state agency. So I, you know, I transitioned directly after defending my dissertation to the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. So, and I've actually served in two roles since coming to the agency in 2017. So I started off as the statewide pink chum and sockeye species specialist under the fish management realm. And then just about two years ago, I transitioned from fish management to fish science, where I had more of a leadership role in a research unit, which was more aligned with my interests. So my current unit is the coast ecology and life cycle monitoring. So under me, I have a team that does a lot of juvenile and adult salmon monitoring in coastal watersheds. So the Chehalis Basin, as well as the lower Columbia River. Um, so we're, we're pretty instrumental in doing juvenile salmon monitoring, abundance estimation for forecasting. Uh, we're doing work with stream temperature, like a stream temperature network, um, like climate change monitoring. So projections about what the stream temperature will look like understanding sort of distribution of salmonids across the basin. And a lot of our work is informing uh, restoration planning. So both in the lower Columbia River as part of the intensively monitored watershed uh, program there and on the coast as part of the Chehalis Basin Aquatic Species Restoration Plan. So what is, you're working on a, a lot of different things. I know you're very busy. And what is one of the favorite parts of the project or project that you're working on right now? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great question. So um, prior to coming to WDFW, all of my work was really marine focused. So I could, I identified as a fisheries oceanographer. So I was not, you know, really working in a bit of a silo where my understanding of salmon survival and salmon life history was isolated to the marine realm. And that's amazing and exciting. And there's, you know, like a lot of uh, environmental changes going on in the ocean. They're very important, but I really did kind of dis or focus less on the freshwater realm. And so in my new role, sort of the, the tides have kind of switched and a lot of more of our, my work that I'm overseeing is um, understanding sort of variability and survival and the life history stages that are occurring in freshwater. And what I'm coming to discover more and more recently is that they're so nested, you know, and oftentimes historically biologists have been pigeonholed to either, you know, entirely spend their entire careers in freshwater or their entire careers in the ocean and they don't communicate. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to break down these barriers and realizing that salmon as this anadromous species, they're really, they're, they're both of these life history stages are so interdependent and related and we really need to understand how one phase is affecting the next and how we can talk, communicate, understand sort of these environmentally driven pressures that are leading to declines in species, you know, trying to understand sort of forecasting abundance based on what these fish are experiencing in these different realms. So uh, it's both a challenge and it's also really exciting. 
at the at WDFW and working on these projects, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges and then also biggest successes? Certainly working at DFW, one of the biggest challenges is just that working with Pacific salmon is you, you have um, a really extensive network of tribal, non-tribal entities that you have to work with. You also, in um, under the framework of the Pacific Salmon Treaty, sort of the bilateral agreement between Canada and the U.S., mm-hmm. you also have this regulatory framework that involves you know, different countries and different agencies. So part of my role is also I serve on the COHO Technical Committee of the Pacific Salmon Commission. And in that role, you know, we work with uh, Canadian, U.S., tribal, non-tribal researchers to all manage this common um, resource, coho. And so uh, a lot of what I work on is um, trying to elevate the conversation about how environmental variability and environmental change is impacting salmon populations. And these are very like large, both spatially large, temporally large, like processes, and they're difficult to grasp your head around. And so trying to make that information digestible is really a big goal um, of, of mine. So right now, what we're currently working on is organizing a workshop for part of um, the Pacific Salmon Commission to bring a number of professional experts together for to educate people on what are environmental indicators as it's related to Pacific salmon and Pacific salmon management, you know, both in the freshwater realm and in the marine realm and using Western science, but also using traditional indigenous knowledge. Um, so how can we bring these this information, distill it down to into indicators and then use these indicators um, in a way that can improve our current structure of salmon management. So it's gonna be a first step. I, I see it as being a sort of long path, but to just begin to have the workshop and to start having that dialogue and have people exposed to these different environmental indicators that are, that are out there and that are time varying and that um, vary, you know, are correlated with sort of the natural life history or, you know, population dynamic variability that we're seeing in our salmon stocks so that they can begin to understand, you know, hey, what, you know, how can we think about salmon in a year from now or four years from now or even longer on, on decadal scales, like from the outputs of climate models in 40 years or 80 years, so. And when do you think that workshop is going to be? It sounds fascinating. Yeah, so I think initially where it's scheduled to happen sort of late spring, early summer, and the, the targeted audience is going to be that Pacific Salmon Commission initially, but there's a lot of interest in sort of expanding out. You know, so WDFW, like I mentioned, we're about to begin the process of the annual, it's called the North of Falcon process. So it's um, the the state and the treaty tribes co-managing resources and setting the salmon season for the upcoming year. 
And that all starts with this sort of overview of environmental conditions and forecasting abundance and, you know, a whole series of, of meetings and modeling to, to, to sort of establish a, a plan. And so the goal is to sort of expand this out. And a lot of the, both the tribal and non-tribal biologists serve on a lot of the Pacific Salmon Commission community or committees. And so they'll be exposed to this. So to, you know, eventually to expand and make resources available on environmental variability to all of the co-managers and folks that are in the science management and researching realm. So uh, like I said, this is just a start of a, a bit of a, you know, a, a sea change moment, but we're, we're working on. That's exciting. So over the last four years, what has been the most exciting project you worked on or kind of results that you've seen? Hmm. So I have to say, you know, and it's ongoing. A lot of the work that I'm involved with mm -hmm. is ongoing, but I'm really excited to be part of the, the Chehalis Basin mm -hmm. Aquatic Species Restoration Plan. So this is unprecedented in scope for the state. You know, the, the, the vision for the ASRP um, is a multi-million dollar, multi-decadal effort, the largest scale restoration effort in a watershed in, in the state of Washington. Um, so it's in the early sort of planning phases, uh, but to be part of that effort um, to help, uh, you know, steer the science or, uh, and kind of establish the goal so that has um, really been a, um, you know, rewarding, you know, because it also, it brings together so many entities from, you know, folks in your realm, in the restoration, freshwater world, process-based restoration world, as well as the biologists and the tribes, the affected tribes. So we're working um, really closely with the Chehalis tribe, as well as the Quinault Indian Nation on that work. And we're, you know, it's an, because it's envisioned as being this multi-decadal effort um, and we're on sort of the early stages of it, you know, you're really your vision, the vision of the project is um, you know, extended through, it's a, it's could be, a, you know, my entire career essentially. Um, so it's nice working, you know, again, with the biologists, working with the habitat modelers and um, working with the engineers and the hydrologists and uh, the you know landowners and the other you know project sponsors and entities that are all kind of coming together on this collective vision for mm -hmm. uh, the basin. Well, that's really exciting. So I was wondering about your thoughts on advice to young professionals who want to get in this field and also definitely interested in your thoughts about diversity and how we can get more diverse voices heard. So young professionals, uh, and I think that regardless of your background, your gender, you really have to have a passion for natural resources. It's not for everyone, <laughs> but you know, a lot of times, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time wet and, you know, elbow deep in fish or hiking and, you know, really difficult terrain or like I, you know, I spent multiple, multiple weeks on Rockies 
boats out mm-hmm. on the ocean. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I don't get seasick and actually kind of get a thrill from it. But I mean, that's, that's the first thing is that you have to really be passionate about the subject. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a labor of love. Um, but then also with respect to diversity, I think that the nationwide since June, 2020, there's been more of um, an effort to understand systemic racism in America and, you know, a- across all agencies. So across, you know, academia, across state, federal agencies, as well as you know, policing and been a bit of a reckoning. So I think that you can start by recognizing that there is a problem, mm-hmm. um, that there is a severe lack of diversity in many of our institutions. And so, for example, over the last three years, I've been part of uh, an effort at DFW. So we are the, the DEI advisory committee. Um, and we, um, you know, are sort of a, 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 not grassroots, but we're, um, you know, an agency working group that is really trying to elevate the discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion um, within our own um, you know, agency. Um, we do a lot of subcommittee work. So um, we're focused on communication and how we present an outward facing representation of the agency to the public, you know, and how we've done it historically and how we can improve upon it to be more inclusive. Uh, we also have a recruitment and retention subcommittee. So we're evaluating the ways that we've historically recruited folks and employees and thinking about ways of doing it differently, um, reaching out to underserved communities or um, kind of, you know, thinking outside the box and in attracting diverse talent. And then um, also just understanding sort of the, the demographics of the agency as a whole historically to kind of as a, as a, as a foundation to how we can make changes and implement, you know, so we don't implement policies, but we make recommendations or we, you know, have discussions about how, how to move things along, how to be a good ally um, to people from underserved communities and really to uh, be more respectful and inclusive all around. So I think it's a lot of it is coming to, you know, acknowledging your own unconscious biases Mm -hmm. because we all harbor them Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then um, learning to, you know, move on from that and, and just how to, uh, how to be a better person at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like WDFW was already had this committee for the past couple of years. That's great to hear. So what are you most hopeful about in upcoming years? Most hopeful about, so, I mean, there definitely is a lot to be pessimistic about, (laughs) um, especially when you're thinking about sort of climate variability and climate change. Like we're seeing the magnitude and the intensity of, of, of climate actions just accelerating. I mean, this last week in Washington is an example where we had record um, record amounts of snow or, you know, certainly uh, more snow than we'd had in se- several decades. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, that that's sort of to be expected because of the trajectory of the jet stream and the polar vortex, which is a hallmark of La Nina, 
And uh, La Nina is essentially it's an equator uh, process associated with El Nino, where there's a dampening of the winds at the um, equator that disrupts sort of atmospheric, oceanic teleconnections and, and affects global weather patterns. Long story short is that La Nina is definitely, um, has typically been associated with higher survival of Pacific salmon um, species because of the cooler temperatures, uh, the more precipitation, you know, we've definitely over the last five years, um, we've really seen unprecedented changes in both freshwater and marine realms. So we've seen um, at least two of the largest marine heat waves. So also known as the warm blobs mm -hmm. um, forming in the Northeast Pacific. Um, we know that productivity has been very low with blobs. We've seen a lot of of mortality, not only with salmon, but salmon prey and other fish like, um, like our, uh, like Pacific cod, um, you know, devastating declines in, in those stocks over the last several years. Um, you see range expansions of fish, but then in terrestrial realms, you've seen devastating droughts. So 2015, you had almost 50% of the pre-spawn mortality in Sockeye returning to the Columbia River watershed, the compounding effects of warm temperatures and low snowpack have seen, you know, record low summertime rearing temperatures and flows for salmon. And so the one highlight or the one point of optimism is that that the La Nina that we're experiencing now could be a sign that, you know, indicative that there's a, a greater chance of survival for fish that either spawned in this last winter or that are rearing in those systems now. And we can start to, um, you know, along with all of the restoration activities that are occurring in watersheds, you know, bank stabilization, channel reconnection, um, large woody inputs, um, that we can start to see, um, you know, sort of a turn from the last sort of devastating five years we've experienced with Pacific salmon and steelhead. Thank you. And in terms of getting more diversity, um, what are you most hopeful in that realm? So, I mean, representation is everything. So as much as I can be a role model for mm -hmm you know, young, passionate naturalists out there, you know, I'm happy to engage any way I can, you know, through opportunities like the NOAA EPP MSI that, you know, supports um, students from, from underserved communities. That's great. I'm also part of, a, of an organization, a brand new organization that developed um, this summer. It's called BWEEMS, W or B-W-E-E-M-S. And what that stands for, it's Black Women in Ecology, Evolution, and Marine Science. We're working, well, the leader, Nikki, um, is working on a website. She had a grant. Um, so, so here's going to be a platform for, again, networking, for profiling, um, amazing Black women and women in science um, for grant and funding opportunities for um, the, you know, positions that are going to be available to both technical positions for jobs, as well as, you know, student mentor type opportunities at university. So just to, you know, again, having a platform and a voice um, to, to 
be able to connect, to network is, is so important. And not only, you know, to build community among ourselves, but also to, to have as an outward facing platform for other people to find us and to, uh, mm-hmm. to know that there's, there's competent folks from underserved communities doing great work out there. Oh, great. Is the website up yet or it's in the It is a work in progress. I can send you sort of a, um, what's, what's available at the moment. Okay. That sounds great. Yeah. Anything that you want to share, me to share with the audience, feel free to send um, some web pages my way. For sure. Do you have any, anything else you want to add about anything we've talked about or haven't talked about? No, no, I'm just, I'm really grateful that you reached out to me, Annika. I think that this podcast, there's a lot of great content on there. You know, I had fun listening to some episodes over, uh, over the weekend. I just really appreciate that you're, you're speaking to diverse folks involved um, in sort of the biology, the hydrology, the restoration community across the state um, in different watersheds, getting different perspectives and that's really what it's all about. We can all learn from each other and support one another. Thank you. Yes, I really enjoy meeting new people. I can't wait to actually meet people in person someday again. <laughs> but in the meantime, Zoom has been great. <laughs> Thank well. you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I would like to end by expressing my deepest respect and gratitude to the many indigenous peoples and tribal nations in the Salish Sea region for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend and write a review. Have a great day.